Let's just pray. Father, it is our honour to worship your name. That you are majestic, you are holy, you are incredible and beyond our understanding and it is our pleasure to be able to bring you small tokens of worship and praise. Father, we thank you for unveiling and revealing yourself to us. We thank you for these songs. We thank you for your word. I just ask that this morning you'll be glorified as we lift your name high. Amen. Aren't the Psalms amazing? Um, they're out, an outstanding part of scripture where we get to hear very honest, open cries from the heart of some of God's people. They have been used by millions of Christians throughout centuries to reflect their own emotions and often thoughts that they have struggled to express in words. It's good to know that scripture has passages for each of us, for each of our situations, and we can come to the Psalms in all times. Today's Psalm is a Psalm written and sung to reflect the emotion of fear and betrayal. I wonder if you've ever felt the particular sting of being betrayed by someone close to you, someone who should have been on your side who hurt you. It's sadly not an uncommon situation. And maybe the worst part of betrayal is that, by definition, as has previously been said, it's not your enemies that are doing it. Betrayal is being hurt by a friend or a loved one and hurts twice as much because of it. Or maybe you just know exactly how it feels to have people seemingly rise up against you, trying to undo you, trying to cause you either physical or emotional hurt. This is what today's psalm is all about. But the context and the lessons of the psalms can be extended to any time, any time where you feel hurt at the hands of another person. So let's quickly read the start to the psalm and think about the context of the passage before we read it fully. It says at the start of Psalm 54, should say this in your Bible, for the director of music with stringed instruments, a mascal of David, when the Ziphites had gone to Saul and said, it's not David hiding among us. It's very helpful to have these little introductions to guide us to the right historical parts of scripture, just at the beginning of some of our Psalms. This is a Psalm of David. It's a mascal, which is a slightly unknown phrase, which may have been a musical terminology, but a lot of commentators translate it to mean a contemplation, something to think and ponder on, something to learn from. So hopefully, hopefully we can learn from this Psalm. The emotions of David, when the Ziphites, had gone to Saul and said, I know where David is. He's in our country. Now, the incredibly sad thing about this is it only narrows it to two parts of scripture, two places where this actually happens in 1 Samuel. Now, I think probably by now, most people anyway would know the general situation of David. Uh, and Andy kind of reminded us about it two weeks ago as well. David was brought into the house of King Saul as a young man to serve him to play the harp in particular when Saul was feeling uh, quite anxious and it was there, he was there to calm Saul down. But the faithful David was willing to do more than just this. 
He was willing to stand against the giant Goliath. He won over the hearts of the people and earned an even greater name than Saul had. But Saul had his own issues, probably some significant mental health problems. And because of all of this, became so jealous of David that he firstly tried to kill David with a spear, then chased him from his house and then went on a hunt for him over many months into the wilderness, determined to find and kill this young man of God who God had actually selected to be the next king. Now at this point, David was a faithful servant of King Saul. He was a faithful servant of God. He was the best friend of Saul's son, Jonathan, and he was the wife of Saul's daughter, Michal. This was a real time of heartache and injustice for David. And even on the run, David was going to find even more people with an unrighteous attitude towards him. And so 1 Samuel, in particular, gives detail about this part of David's life. And two weeks ago, as I said, Andy explained part of this to us, involving the treachery of Doeg, who was a truly evil man. But shortly after this, you can read in 1 Samuel chapter 23, David's continuing pursuit by Saul. He and 600 men who were loyal to him find themselves running from place to place, trying to just stay away from Saul and his army, trying to stay as low-key as possible. And in verse 14 of 1 Samuel 23, we might read this. Thank you. Uh, David stayed in the wilderness strongholds and in the hills of the desert of Ziph. Day after day, Saul searched for him, but God did not give David into his hands. Now, you should know that the Ziphites were part of the people of Judah. That was the land that the wilderness of Ziph was in. So was David. Saul was of the people of Benjamin. The tribes were really important in Israel. And these Ziphites, by their heritage, should have been pro-David rather than pro-Saul. And even if it wasn't to do with where the land was and their heritage, actually, David had done nothing wrong. It was only months earlier, or maybe even just weeks earlier, that the people were heralding David as this great conqueror. Saul has conquered his thousands, but David has tens of thousands. David hadn't actually done anything wrong. However, when we get to verses 19 to 22 of 1 Samuel 23, we read this. The Ziphites went up to Saul at Gabeah and said, Is not David hiding among us in the strongholds of Horish on the hill of Hakalah, south of Jeshimon? Now, your majesty, come down whenever it pleases you to do so, and we will be responsible for giving him into your hands. Saul replied, The Lord bless you for your concern for me. Go and get more information. Find out where David usually goes and who has seen him there. They tell me he is very crafty. It's a good reputation to have. Treachery is afoot. From here, you can read yourself in Samuel 23 how Saul pursued David to the closest point that he ever really got. Saul managed to track David with this information down until Saul and his army were on the same mountain as David and his men, and they were closing in fast. They were in a great position to capture and kill David and his men. However, word came to Saul that the Philistine army 
a real enemy of Saul, was attacking Saul's land and he had to retreat to go back and deal with him. So David and his men escaped. That was a close call. This was the closest Saul ever really got to capturing David and all because of those treacherous Ziphites who seemed far more interested in impressing King Saul and maybe currying some favour with him than doing what was actually right and having any kind of loyalty to one of their own and someone who was actually innocent. Now you might hope that this was the only time this happened but as I say you would have been mistaken. There's plenty of interesting activity to read in chapters 24 and 25. It's been a while since I've read through 1 Samuel, but I've read back through these chapters uh, during this week, and I would highly commend it. It's a very interesting uh, set of circumstances. It's quite the epic. And in in 1 Samuel, uh, included in those passages, is a very famous situation where Saul, as he's hunting David, goes to relieve himself in a cave, which happens to be the very cave that David and his men are hiding in. Saul is on a silver platter, unguarded, vulnerable, right in front of him. The perfect opportunity for David to take his vengeance and to kill Saul. Instead, David chooses to cut off a small section of Saul's cloak without him realising he is that close to King Saul. And once Saul has got a little bit further away and is at a safe distance, David shouts about where he was, how close he was, what he could have done, but showing his loyalty to King Saul. He was unwilling to strike down the king who God had raised up, even if he did have it coming. And when we arrive at chapter 26, we read these familiar words. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gabeah and said, is not David hiding in the hills of Hakalah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Again, Saul sets out to pursue David. And please do reread chapter 26 when you have some time. I really would recommend these four chapters from kind of 1 Samuel 22 all the way up to 26. In this chapter, David and a friend manage to sneak into Saul's camp when he's asleep, to steal his water bottle and his spear from right beside where he sleeps. Again, retreating to a safe distance to shout, how he could have killed Saul, but was in fact loyal to Saul, unwilling to strike down the Lord's anointed. But all because, again, of those blooming Ziphites. Where David is loyal and upright, their appalling attitude towards David and shameful self-interest shines through yet again. Now, it's not really clear exactly which of these two accounts leads to David writing this psalm, but clearly the situation that David is going through leads to a very emotional psalm, which expresses his real hurt and betrayal. So that's the background, that's the context, that's where the Ziphites have entered into the situation of David. And so we come to Psalm 54, and it reads like this. Save me, O God, by your name, vindicate me by your might. Hear my prayer, O God, listen to the words of my mouth. Arrogant foes are attacking me. Ruthless people are trying to kill me. People without regard for God. Surely God is my help. The Lord is the one who sustains me. Let evil recoil from those who slander me. In your faithfulness, destroy them. 
I will sacrifice a free will offering to you. I will praise your name, Lord, for it is good. You have delivered me from all my troubles, and my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. Why was David writing this psalm? Well, we get the answer to this in the psalm itself, obviously. It's always best to read and see the reason for the writer writing before we try to apply it to ourselves. Firstly, he wanted to be spared from King Saul. See verse 1, save me, O God. He was probably sick of running, to be honest. He was away from his family, his wife, everything he knew, safety and security. He clearly didn't have a clue who he could trust anymore. Now, scripture and history have shown us that this is exactly what God did do. David would be saved from this situation. Saul's life would actually not last much longer. And soon David was set on the throne and his days of fleeing in this circumstance would be over. Secondly, he wanted vindication. See again verse 1. Vindicate me by your might. Not only did King Saul have a terribly unjust perspective of David, it was clear that many others in the land did too. Those that should have known better were turning on him. That's a terrible feeling. David wanted God to clear up this gross injustice and make his name good again. One of the really sad things is it was arrogant, ruthless people who were against him. It was people who had no regard for God. That's how David describes them. These people should have known better. They were godly by heritage, but ungodly in thought and action. And they were dragging the name of a good person through the mud and trying to kill him. Now again, we know from history and scripture that God would answer this prayer more than David could ever have believed. David, of course, did not know this at the time, but we do. David's name would be revered and honored as one of the greatest kings to rule over Israel. And here we are speaking about him thousands of years later. Thirdly, David wanted justice. See verse 5. In your faithfulness, destroy them. David knew that what was happening to, happening to him was wrong and there was clearly justice that needed to be dealt. David was not in a position at this point to do so. And so God calls on God to provide the judgment required. It should be noted that David was never one for dishing out justice. We considered earlier that he had at least two opportunities to kill Saul. Saul was handed to him on a plate and he was not willing to raise a sword against him. And you can read many situations and accounts of King David and how he graciously he dealt with people. Read in 2 Samuel chapter 9 about how David dealt with Mephibosheth. Hard to say from up here. Saul's grandson, somebody who might have had a claim for the throne. But David, rather than you know, finding him and, and killing him in a way that many a king would have done, deals with him so graciously and so kindly. David was not one for stepping over the line to take justice, but would rather walk rightly and allow God to deal how he saw fit. And now again, we know from history that God would step in to do exactly this. Saul would soon be dead, not by David's hand, 
We don't know much about the Ziphites from this point on, but David was certainly going to have the position to be able to apply God's justice if it was required. So God was going to answer his prayer. So on this psalm, I want to just focus on two main points. Firstly, that David prayed confidently. And secondly, that David praised confidently. This is a good model for any of our prayers. Jesus himself teaching us how to pray in the Lord's Prayer both combines praise, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, and request, give us today our daily bread. So we should point out right at the start that when trouble hit David, he almost always turned to prayer. It wasn't a last resort. It wasn't a five-minute minute before bed kind of deal with David. He prayed. It was the bedrock of his relationship with his God. It was a constant communion with his Father, with his God, with his Lord, rather than a defensive position when all else fails. This needs to be our approach to prayer. I've said it myself from this platform. Prayer is the ultimate battleground in our faith. And it is the hardest thing to persistently maintain. I say this because I know how much I struggle to order my life, to fit prayer in, and to maintain a regular prayer routine. To make prayer my first port of call, not just when things are bad, but actually when things are good as well. It's hard, but it's so important. I think it's hard because it's so vital and so effective. It's the first thing that Satan attacks in church and in your personal life. I believe it's also one of the greatest defenses that we have against temptation, against damaging perceptions of ourselves and of God, against false belief in our own theology, against wrong action in our lives and so much more. We need to pray more. There is no such thing as too much prayer. We need to pray more individually. We need to pray more corporately as a church what Jesus did. Read the Gospels and note how many times when Jesus felt really under pressure, he went to God to pray. And if it's good enough for Jesus, it's certainly good enough for us. There isn't a substitute for prayer. So David's psalm of prayer. In verse 1, David says, save me, O God, by your name. Now we often talk about the name of God. And refer to the power associated with it. When David refers to the name of God, he is calling on the entire nature and character of God. The name of God in all of its translations is a powerful name. And as David calls on God's character, through his name he invokes the eternal nature of God. The omniscience of God, the unimaginable wisdom of God. This verse uses the name Elohim, which is the plural of El which translates as God, mighty, strong, and powerful. David is calling on God in all of his might and all of his strength to save him. This is a desperate prayer of salvation, but it is rooted in the strength that he knows his God has. This prayer is based on experience and knowledge. David remembers the power that God showed as he stepped out in front of the giant Goliath. He knows the power that God showed as he fought the bear and fought the lion and many other foes throughout his life. 
David has no doubt of the ability of God to step in and to save him. And he's also got no doubt that God will hear his prayer. When you read verse 2, it reads a little as if there's doubt in his mind. Hear, hear my prayer, O God. Listen to my words as if somehow God may not hear. God may not be listening. It almost sounds as if David is unsure that he has God's attention. Maybe God isn't really listening to him just now. Yes, he's powerful, but if he's not actually paying any attention to me, then my prayers aren't going to be answered. Well, that idea is squashed as we proceed in the psalm. Verse 4 says, surely God is my help. There's no doubt there. The first few verses have been hard to read and listen to. There's anguish and fear. But in verse 4, the tone changes. As David lifts his prayer to God and remembers the power and the might of that God, he reframes the entire situation that he is in. He realizes, or at least starts to rephrase, that rather than his life being in the hands of Saul and his army, his life is actually in the strong arms of Elohim. And verse 7 is even greater. David writes as if he already knows that God has completed the work. You have delivered me from all of my troubles. My eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. David sees victory already. He knows that God will answer his prayer. He knows that God has heard him. There is no doubt in his words, hear my prayer. This is incredible confidence brought to God as he knows that he will be heard by his God and that his God will answer the all-powerful God will answer. Now, this is far easier to say than it is to live out. But David's God is our God. His power is the same. His attentive ear is exactly the same today for you and I. The God we pray to today is the same God of power and might. He is the same attentive God that hears your prayers and takes great pleasure in answering them. First John verse 5, uh, chapter 5, sorry, and verse 14 says this. Thanks, Paul. This is the confidence we have in approaching God that, he, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And First Chronicles 16, verse 11 says, look to the Lord and his strength. Seek his face always. We have an incredible God who hears and answers prayer and whatever your circumstances today, no matter how tough, no matter how dark they seem, how painful, and I don't pretend to know what you're going through, the situation that you know, but whatever it is, look to the Lord. Look to Elohim, to the one who is powerful and strong and mighty to save. You can have total faith that your God is powerful to bring you through any circumstance in which you find yourself. But note that David is then happy to leave this with God. He believes that God has the power, strength, and wisdom to deal with his enemies. But for David, justice is of the Lord. Now, this doesn't mean that our courts are ungodly. We clearly have laws from God for the purpose of maintaining order and dealing human justice and we don't just ignore people who hurt us in our lives. That would be unwise and a bit naive. But vengeance is a different thing. To step out and take hurtful actions against 
Somebody you feel might have hurt you is different from justice. Our Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ, had the power and the right to take vengeance against the actions of sinful men against him. And he chose a different path. David had motive and opportunity for his own vengeance, once in a cave, once in Saul's camp, and maybe other opportunities as well. And still he left Saul to God. David is okay with this to take his hurt and his betrayal to God and to leave it right there. And we can have faith that God is in control of justice and that eternally no wrong will be left undone. The world around us can seem very dark and it often is. It can seem like the evil prosper and it can leave us confused at times by God's apparent lack of action. Sometimes on the global scale, sometimes in our own personal life. It's okay to feel like that. It's okay to have that confusion. It's okay. Take it to God. He's big enough for your complaints. He's big enough for your concerns. But we can rest on the truth that our God is holy and our God is just and wrong will be dealt with. At times, our feelings, our thoughts and our beliefs, in particular about God, are guided by the circumstances we're in. And that's dangerous. We need to be grounded on the truth that we know of God. And we know that he is just and that he will deal with people as necessary. So if someone has hurt you and you would like to see God's justice in action, you can have faith that God has not missed it. God may decide to deal with that person sooner or later or in eternity. But we can rest assured that God is one, that our God is one of justice who will not forget. So how do we react in these situations? It's hard to be like David. There's some real maturity in David's response in this situation, but it's a goal that we can all have and seek to pursue, to take our personal heart to God and leave it with him. But this is something for anyone who does not have a living relationship with God, just to remember. God sees each of our sins. He's seen every time we've hurt someone, every time that we've done wrong, God does have perfect recall. But God has already forgiven his children. Those under the blood of Jesus Christ in relationship with God through the death of his son have already had their sins forgiven. For anyone here today who has not made that step of personal repentance, asking God for forgiveness and turning from a life of self-pleasure, that be warned, God is a God of justice. He does not want any person to suffer for their sins. He does not want any person to still know him as that judge on the throne. He has made a way of salvation through Jesus Christ. It is open to all, it is clear and plain, but the, the decision and the responsibility still lies with each of us to choose Jesus and to accept that offer. So David prays with confidence. And David praises with confidence. A prayer without praise is a missed opportunity. One of the things that is maybe most remarkable through the psalm, through all of the psalms, but also other parts of scripture, is that many people who are in truly dark times find that praising God helps to bring them through it. 
that's remarkable. That's actually amazing. I don't believe that praise is just to honor God, only to honor God, although that's clearly a major part of it, to lift God's name high. But I do believe that when we choose to praise God, even in the storms of life, it helps to ground us, to remind us that God is in control and to bring God into our experience. It's a very hard habit to get into and often the last thing that we actually want to do. But I have faith that when we choose to praise God, when things are bad, we will find ourselves lifted higher and will be stronger. So what are some of the things that David says? Well, verse one, he says, by your name and by your might, he acknowledges the power, the character, the strength of God. In verse four, he says, the Lord is the one who sustains me, acknowledging that God, his God is the one who brings him through the difficult times and keeps him going. In verse five, God is faithful. David acknowledges that God can be trusted, is unfailing and completely faithful to his own character and promises. In verse six, the name of God is good and to be praised. David confirms that God's name is a good name. Really, the translation here is pleasant and bringing pleasure. And that's exactly what the name of God does in our lives when we give it the chance. And in verse seven, the Lord delivers. The Lord gives triumph. David knows and has seen before and will see that the Lord gives triumph over evil, over wrong and over sin. And that this is something that we know is true of our God too. Regardless of how this world looks around us, we know that, we know that the Lord will triumph over evil and that his good will reign eternally. But isn't it amazing that he manages to fit all this praise in, in this circumstance when he's hiding from an army being chased for his life. It's truly a remarkable thing. And David promises to offer a free will offering to God. David is absolutely sure that his God will bring him through this trial. And when he does, David promises to give this offering to him. Now the free will offering was a public statement of thanks to God. And it would have been done at the tabernacle and later at the temple. Amongst all of God's people and publicly and open is a promise to give God the glory for the triumph that he knows he will see. Does it happen? Well, yeah, it does. There's plenty more drama for David through the rest of 1 Samuel. And as I say, do read it. It's a real uh, epic page turner. And then into 2 Samuel as well. When you get to chapter 5 of 2 Samuel, David does indeed become king over all Israel and all Judah. He reconquers Jerusalem, and in chapter 6, he brings the ark of the Lord into Jerusalem. He praises the name of the Lord openly in the streets of Jerusalem. The name of the Lord was indeed magnified and lifted up by David in the holy city, just as he promised he would do. There are dark times ahead for David still. Much failure, much hurt. But certainly for this part of his life, verse 7 rings true. You have delivered me from all of my troubles. And my eyes have looked in triumph on my foes. And I hope that as we conclude our consideration of Psalm 54, that you find some encouragement 
Encouragement to pray. To do so with real confidence in your God. Encouragement to bring your needs and your concerns in the middle of whatever situation you find yourself in. Encouragement to praise the name of the great God, Elohim. So let us just take a short period of time. I'm just going to pause for 30 seconds to offer our prayers to God, to give him thanks for his goodness to us, to worship him just quietly, and then I'll pray for us and the musicians will come back up and lead us in another song. So let's just pause and bring our, our own worship and prayers to God at this time. He is the one who hears. He is the one who answers. Father, we bless your great name this morning. We honor you as the one who reigns, is righteous and holy, and will be victorious. I know that there will be those here today, or those at home listening, who are going through some really difficult times, maybe feeling betrayed as well. Give them comfort. Let them know that you are there with them. Give them trust and faith that you have plans for their life for good. Remind us all today that it is when, it is when we are weak that you are most strong. It is when we bow ourselves and, and humbly place ourselves in your hands that your strength is seen in us. We acknowledge your greatness. We thank you for your grace.